This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. Hey, are you ready to hear more about the mythical background to the Genesis creation story? Have you been telling your friends and family about how Genesis 1 is connected to the Babylonian Enuma Elish, the Gilgamesh epic, or maybe some of the various Egyptian creation epics, and they want to hear more? If so, you're in luck. We're going to have a lot more details in today's show when we look at Genesis 1, 6 through 8, about the connections between these other stories and the creation story as it is recorded in the Bible. And yes, you heard that right. We're covering three verses today. Every episode up to this point has been one verse, but today we're going to shoot for three. Wish me luck. Hey, and just as with every episode of the One Verse Podcast, this episode is sponsored by Logos Bible Software. And I made a mistake in every previous, well, not every previous episode, but several of them before. I thought that my discount code, jmyer 6 worked on every single item at the Logos Bible Software website. I found out this week it doesn't. A uh, listener tried to purchase a particular book I recommended, and the discount code didn't work, so I contacted Logos Bible Software And they informed me that it only works on their software packages, their base packages. The starter, the gold, the silver, the platinum, or whatever it is, the scholar's edition, pastor's edition. I'm not even sure all the names they have for them. So it only works. The 15% off discount code only works if you're buying one of those base packages. And it doesn't work on upgrades either. So make sure that when you use that code, jmeyer 6 to get your 15% off, you're using it on the package that you want long term. Anyway... With that in mind, let's get on with the show. Let me begin by reading the text of Genesis 1, 6 through 8. It says this, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Okay, so Genesis 1-6 is the beginning of the second day of creation, and on this day, God separates the waters above from the waters below. And uh, notice that what he uses to separate the waters above from the waters below is uh, this firmament, which the text calls the firmament, and it's in the midst or in the middle or in between the waters. Uh, The word firmament uh, indicates, the Hebrew word there indicates sort of a hard see-through shell. Uh, I looked it up, the, the Hebrew word is rakia, Rakia in Hebrew, and I looked it up in the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery. There's a link in the show notes to that book uh, at Amazon and CBD. Uh, And it states that the firmament is a a Latin term, which means a a brass dome. It indicates a brass dome over the earth, uh, sort of like a molten mirror. And it's used that way in other places in Scripture. 
And somehow this dome, uh, you could almost think of it as a heavenly dam, it's transparent. I mean, it's made out of brass. That was the idea, because that was the strongest metal they had uh, that was known to them back then at the time. Uh, So somehow, though, this dome was transparent so that those on the earth below could look up and see through it and see the blue waters on the other side. And that's why they explained, that's one of the reasons how they explained that the sky was blue. So when, when, when people looked up into the sky, they thought they were seeing water, a big ocean, a heavenly ocean above them. And so this is why also later in the biblical text, when they explain where rain comes from, they describe it, it's like in Genesis 7-11 and 8-1, wherein the flood comes upon the earth, it's described as a window of heaven opening. And so the idea was that you have this dome up here, and a window opens, and the waters that are held back by the firmament, this dome, the waters uh, fall through, they pour through, and it becomes rain as it falls down through the sky and uh, becomes, becomes uh, rain on the earth, lands on the earth. So when people thought about the way the elements were arranged, about the way the cosmos was arranged, they thought uh, the water of the sea, so just sort of picture this in your mind, the water of the sea, it's at the bottom, the ocean, and then above that, and sort of level with the sea, of course, is the ground, um, but that hasn't been created yet in the Genesis account. Uh, and then above the sea and above the, the, the land is the air, uh, obviously, that's what we live in and we breathe. And then above that is this firmament. It's this hard see-through shield or dome. And then finally, on top of the dome is the waters above, uh, and, and that's where the rains came from. Now, think about this for a second. That, that's how Genesis 1, that's how other texts in the, in the Bible describe sort of the makeup of the world. Now, obviously, if you think that Genesis 1 is a scientific treatise on how the world came to be, and it's a scientific description of the way things are, well, (laughs) this sort of explanation of the sky and where rain comes from is going to cause you problems. But there's even a bigger problem than that. You might say, oh, well, they're just, this is a bit of a, a poetry description here. Well, okay, there's a bigger problem than this, though. Uh, you look down to Genesis 1.15, and that is where God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. And there, we'll talk about this more when we get there, but there the text says that God placed the sun, the moon, and the stars in the firmament. Now, if you keep that in mind, sort of this picture about the order of, of, of the layers around the earth— Uh, Basically, what it is saying that when the sun, moon, and stars are placed in the firmament, the sun, moon, and stars are lower than the waters above. And, uh, I mean, it's sort of understandable how ancient people thought this way. Um, It appears, from a human perspective, that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And we still talk that way today, even though we know today that that's not what happens. The sun is stationary, and we rotate, we revolve around the sun. Um, but that's not the way they thought back then. They thought the sun actually rose, that the earth was stationary, and the sun went around the earth. Um, and, and so from the earthly perspective, though, it appears that uh, in order for that to happen, if you have this big dome and the waters above it, that somehow they thought, well, the sun must be lower than the blue sky. In fact, um, from an ancient perspective, if the sun, uh, if you think about this for a second, from an ancient perspective, what they really thought was happening was that every day, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, every day the sun was born anew, and it traveled across the sky, and then it died, 
It, it was extinguished when it set in the west in the ocean. They, they recognized it as this big ball of fire. They didn't realize how big it was. Uh, and they thought that it, it was born, it was, it was ignited, it was kindled in the morning when it rose somehow magically, mysteriously from the gods in the east, and it traveled across the sky, and then it was extinguished in the west, in the ocean. Now, if, if you were to put this, this blazing ball of sun above the firmament, then where would it be? Well, from, a, from, from their perspective, it would be in the heavenly ocean. It would be in, this, in this, this waters above the firmament, and therefore it would never be able to shine. It would always be extinguished. And so, what did they do? Well, they placed the sun in the firmament itself, in this dome, in this shell, which is between the air and the waters above. Again, again, it doesn't make any sense. Um, boy, and when the waters fall, think about this. When the waters fall, they sort of they, they fall from above the sun and the moon and the stars because they fall uh, from the ocean that is above the firmament. I, the only point is this: Look, you cannot, you cannot claim to have a literal reading of Genesis one. I'm just reading the Bible the way it's written. Uh, you know, to try to defend a, 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 some sort of creationistic explanation here, and then come to a text like this and say, oh, well, uh, they're using poetic here, poetry to describe this. Look, yes, they're using poetry, and it's all poetry. Don't, don't try to use Genesis 1 as a scientific treatise on the way the world began and the way the world is, is, is made up. It just doesn't work that way. It's so much easier and in my opinion, it's, it's, it's more honest as well, um, to take the text seriously the way it is and recognize Genesis 1 for what it is, rather than try to force it into something it isn't. Genesis 1 is a poetic, theological masterpiece in which Moses shows the people of Israel how Yahweh, their God, is better and superior to the gods and goddesses of Babylon, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Canaan. Uh, the, the nations around them that they were familiar with, the nations that they had just come from, Egypt, the nation that they were going to uh, go into, Canaan, right? I, I keep emphasizing this over and over in, in every show, because this isn't just going to be true in Genesis 1. We are going to encounter this sort of theme, this sort of practice, everywhere in the entire Bible, even the New, New, New Testament. The Gospels, for example. Did you know the Gospels are a particular genre of literature which wasn't invented for the Bible? It was something the Caesars used at the birth of every Caesar and after the death of every Caesar to explain uh, what they accomplished in their life and how the Caesar became a god. Okay, the, the Gospels, there were Caesar Gospels. I, I'm getting off track here. The point is, this sort of idea is all over the place, and if we don't understand the context, especially the cultural, cultural historical context behind, even the religious context behind whatever uh, biblical text we're studying, we will never understand the Bible. We Christians are often guilty of, of, of trying to read the Bible the way it was never meant to be read. Sometimes we hear people say that the Bible is like a roadmap for life's problems. It's not. It's, it's not an answer book to solve our questions. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not really even a theology book to tell us everything we need to know about God. Uh, the Bible's not any of those things. And as long as we approach it sort of with that goal, that intent in mind, we're never going to understand the Bible correctly. 
uh, only when we read the Bible for what it really is will we begin to discover the true message of what the Bible contains. Again, I'll be explaining a lot more about this as you stick with me as we go through these various shows in the One Verse podcast. But, but look, we're not, we're, we're not done. We haven't even scratched the surface on Genesis 1-6 yet. Notice uh, that at the end of Genesis 1-6, uh, we read that the firmament, this firmament God created between the hold back the heavenly waters, um, it was set in place by God to divide the waters from the waters. Uh, this idea is further emphasized uh, down there in Genesis 1-7 where uh, you say, what waters and waters? Well, the waters below and the waters above. That's what Genesis 1-7 says. And I talked about this in previous shows where I mentioned that uh, in the Enuma Elish, it's the Babylonian creation epic, um, there's this big long prelude to the epic about the gods and this problem they were having with Tiamat and so on. But in the sort of uh, part that is parallel to Genesis 1, the god Marduk goes to war with Tiamat and he eventually defeats her. She's this uh, chaotic uh, goddess of the water, this, this goddess of watery chaos. And uh, Marduk wages war against her and eventually defeats her. And uh, as part of his defeats, he bashes her brains in with, and cuts her body in half and, uh, and then separates one half from the other. The, he, he takes one half and places it up in the heavens and then one half down below in the deep. Uh, the water, and he separates the waters above from the waters below, all right? So that is very, very similar to what we see here in Genesis 1, 6, and 7, okay? But what's the big difference? Again, I've talked about this before. In, in, in Enuma Elish, in the Babylonian creation epic, Marduk's victory over Tiamat is full of blood and violence and war, all right? He, he takes her body and cuts it in half, but there's nothing like that here in the Genesis creation account. And I've told you before, uh, and I'll say it again, Moses is making the point that, that God is sovereign and that there's no force that can stand against him. Yes, Yahweh is powerful and creator, uh, but he, he, even here, we don't see any hint anywhere of, of enemies, enemies of the gods or enemies in rebellion against God. So there's no reason for Yahweh to go out to war, bloody battle, against Tehom. There is something malevolent or ominous about Tehom, this deep in Genesis 1-2, this watery deep, uh, the abyss. But uh, it's not there as the result of cosmic battle or warfare in the heavens or or rebellion, anything like that. Um, And and so when God sets out to restore it, to redeem it, he simply does so with his word, with the the fluttering of uh, of his breath over the surface of the water. He speaks, and the waters obey. We'll see a lot more of this in verses to come as well. But, by the way, it's not just, I haven't emphasized this as much, it's not just the Enuma Elish that talk about this, um, that that have parallels between uh, their accounts and what we read in Genesis 1. Probably, uh, there's even deeper parallels. I have an article in the show notes about this from one of my professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, Gordon Johnston. And he has a great, great article on the parallels between the Egyptian creation stories and the creation story as it is found in Genesis 1. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, that's at redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 1, 6-8. You can look it up there. But he points out that uh, there are basically four types, variations of the Egyptian creation stories. 
And uh, but all of them have very similar are very similar, and all of them are very similar with what we read here in Genesis one. And he points out though that uh, in these e- Egyptian creation stories, there are these two deities who live basically in they're they're a male and female deity, and they are in love. They they live in an eternal embrace. One is the ground god, and um, his name is Geb. And then there's the sky goddess, and her name is Nut, N-U-T, Nut, sort of, Nut. And then uh, between them uh, eventually comes this god Shu, S-H-U. And um, basically what happens is Shu separates these two lovers uh, from each other. And why does he do that? Well, he needs to make a habitable space for Atum, one of the other Egyptian gods. There has to be a place for Atum to live. He can't live in the air, uh, and he can't live in the water. He can't live uh, inside the earth. He has to live on the earth, sort of like humans do. And so Shu creates this dry air and separates separates the ground below from the water, the earth above. I'm sorry, the ground below from the the um, the sky above, from Newt. All right, you know what? This is very hard to describe. Describe. Um, there's a picture that they have uh, that shows this from uh, Egypt. I'll put that in the show notes. You can go take a look at it. And it shows these three gods, uh, one lying on the ground, and then there is Shu, who sort of arched himself over the ground to hold back uh, Newt, the sky goddess, so that she can no longer come down and embrace her lover, Geb. All right, there's a picture in the show notes. A picture is worth a thousand words rather than I try and explain it. Go look at it. It all sounds very similar, though. This is the point. It all sounds very similar to what we read about here in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I have another article I'll put in the show notes from Gerhard Hazel, and he shows not just these similarities between Egypt, but also the Enuma Elish, which I've talked about before. And not just those two, though, but he goes into the Hittite versions and talks about how uh, in those versions, the separation of heaven and earth is performed with a cutting tool. And then he talks about the Phoenician mythology and how uh, they have this separation that also happens, but it's uh, with the world egg. The world egg is separated, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay, lots and lots of details here, lots and lots of parallels. The point is, uh, Moses and the Israelites would have been aware of these. If nothing else, they would have known about these these Egyptian creation myths. And so Moses is setting out to show show, he's not to show, hey, look, we are in agreement with them. That's not the point. He's not supporting the, the pagan myths, these, these uh, pagan creation stories. Instead, he's overcoming them. He's undermining them. This is a polemic against them to show that Yahweh is radically different and infinitely better than anything offered by any other religion in any surrounding country or area. Right? He is not threatened by the waters. He doesn't have to engage in warfare against the waters. He has power over the waters, and they do what he commands. That's the point. That's what we see in Genesis 1, 6, and 7, with this separation of the waters below from the waters above. Finally, then, uh, in Genesis 1, 8, uh, day 2 of creation ends just as day 1 did. Remember, I, I pointed out there, and I pointed out here, uh, God names what he has made. This naming, again, a key activity of God in Genesis 1. And he says he, he names the firmament heaven. Now, uh, again, heaven, uh, when we think of the word heaven, we think of this, this spiritual 
place where God dwells, sitting on the throne. You know, some people have this idea of of clouds and celestial mansions or something like that. That's not the way the Hebrew Scriptures refers to heavens. Uh, for the for for the Hebrews, the heavens were basically the air we breathe. Uh, it, it includes, you know, the 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 where the clouds are and where the birds fly, things like that, and also where the stars, the planet, sun, moon, and stars are. So, so uh, that fits with what we read here in Genesis, well, because God calls the firmament this this place that He's later going to place the sun, moon, and stars as the heavens, and of course above that is the waters above. But but we looked at that as well. And then uh, Genesis 1-8 ends the same way Genesis 1-5 ended with this statement about there being evening and morning the second day. And again, I want to I want to emphasize, I want to reiterate, this doesn't mean this was the second 24-hour period. This is not a scientific book. This is a literary piece of of uh, religious spiritual literature. It's 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 mythopoetic. Okay? Doesn't mean it's wrong. It's it's radically true. It's exactly correct, but we have to read it in its proper genre, which is literature. Uh, the statement which concludes uh, each day, uh, after day one, and then here after day two, and then after day three. Um, you know what, in the last episode, I even talked about this parallel about, you know, once upon a time, a long, long time ago, how we, we use those sorts of indicators to talk, to introduce uh, fairy tales to people. Well, um, Gordon Johnston, in his article, again, go read it in the in the show notes. Uh, he points out that the Egyptian religion used this uh, very similar poetic device that Moses uses here to tell their creation stories and to tell organize their beliefs and practices around the sun god Ra. Right, uh, but um, in those practices, when they worshipped Ra. The most important thing was the rising of the sun, and uh, and then this was followed by the setting of the sun, which would indicate, according to the Egyptians, the the birth of Ra in the morning, and then the death of Ra at night. It was seen as his as his as his death and his burial. Um, well, and every morning it's his resurrection. So it went resurrection life. Death and burial, and then the next day, and a lot of people say, "See, see, this whole thing of Jesus rising and dying and all that—it didn't begin with Jesus, you know. It began way back with Ra. You know what? That's it's, it's sort of true. Um, and that's a—it doesn't mean Jesus didn't die and rise again. It just shows that uh, this sort of pattern of death and resurrection, and uh, it, it, it's everywhere in creation. And I think that that is because God has been preparing the hearts and minds of people all over the world for the gospel message of Jesus. But, uh, so Gordon Johnson points that out, and so he, he points out that, again, the Israelite people, just as you and I, when we hear, once upon a time, a long, long time ago, when they read, and it was evening, it was morning, they would have recognized the very similar terminology that the Egyptians used in the worship of their god, Ra. But Moses, just like with everything else, he changed it. Again, the most important thing for the Egyptians was the resurrection, the birth of Ra every morning. And so they would begin with, and it was morning. And then later, it was evening. And that's how they would uh, organize their beliefs and practices uh, with that statement. Moses, though, he reverses it. He, I, I believe he intentionally reverses it. He begins with, and it was evening, and then follows that with, it was morning, and then the, the, the counting of the day, first day, second day. And I believe this is because, for Moses, uh, and for the people of Israel, and for all of Scripture— 
Moses recognized a theme here, which is important for us to recognize as well. And that it's this. Moses recognized the cycle that the truth, the biblical truth, that death precedes resurrection. Uh, It's a theme that Moses experienced in his own life. He was raised as a son of Pharaoh to be a ruler over Egypt. But then, because he killed an Egyptian, he's exiled into desert, into the desert, where he became a sheep farmer. How's that for a type of death? Going from ruler of the world to a sheep farmer on the, in the back desert of Saudi Arabia or someplace. But after 40 years of tending sheep in the desert, God called Moses. God resurrected Moses, in a way, and brought him back to Egypt to rescue and deliver the people of Israel from bondage and slavery. And it's the same thing with the, with the Israelites. Remember, we, we talked about the Israelites, they've just come out of Egypt, and they have all these questions about God. How could God have allowed us to be in slavery in Egypt for 400 years? Okay, And, and, and Moses is telling them, look, God is in the business of resurrecting those who have died. I died, Moses is saying, when I was exiled from Egypt for 40 years. You died, Moses is saying to the people of Israel when you became slaves in Egypt, but now resurrection has come. Now the morning has dawned. Now your slavery has ended, and a new day is beginning. We see the cycle all over the place in Scripture. I'll try to point it out when we see it. I imagine that you can sort of see this same sort of cycle in your own life. Do you ever feel that God has abandoned you, forgotten about you, Do you feel on the verge of death, depression, despair, like nothing's going to turn out, each day is worse than the day before? Well, you're in a cycle of death. Live there, because you're about to experience a resurrection. Scriptural truth is that death always precedes resurrection. The night is always darkest just before the dawn. If you are in the evening, if you are in the night, be patient. Wait upon the Lord, for morning is coming. Hope you found this episode of the One Verse Podcast encouraging and instructive. I'd appreciate some comments, feedback questions. Again, you can go get the show notes as well. Those are found at redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 1, 6 through 8. Be able to leave a comment, see what other people leave as well. And you know what? I'd also appreciate it if you have the time, go leave a rating and review at iTunes. I just checked before this episode went live. I'm currently ranked as number 75 in the new and notable over at iTunes. And I have one review so far. You should go read that review. I know who it's from. She is the love of my life. Yes, 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 my first review is from my wife. But that makes sense, right? She's my biggest fan. I love her her a lot. So uh, go read what she said. And uh, while you're there, leave a rating review of your own. I'd appreciate it. I read them all. And uh, eventually, I'll probably read some on the show as well. Thank you much. Thanks for listening. See you in the next episode when we look at the next verse in Genesis chapter 1.